Cause fit hot guys have problems too Don't look at us, we're not dancing for you Leave us alone, we have to twerk out our sad, 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 sad We're expressing our pain through the art of dance But we'll express so much better without these pants There's so much pressure when you're a big hot guy So just let us ugly cry <laughs> Let us ugly cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh Let me tell you something. 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 Well, let me tell you something. Well, let me tell you something. Greetings, Grapple fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something. It's the original sauce recipe, as two different generations, but now both in the creaky joints generations, <laughs> discuss the factors, the attributes, the aspects, the nuances, the minutiae of the world of professional wrestling, an industry built on cracked nerves and creaking joints. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me as always is the Cody Rhodes to my Ted DiBiase Jr., the Rated to my RKO, the RK to my bro, Mr. Simon Cross. Simon, how you doing today, mate? Uh, I'm doing good, Lorcan. I'm doing very good because all of our listeners are hearing voices in their heads. They counsel me. They understand. And we're talking to you specifically about the life, career of Randy Orton. <laughs> Yeah, Simon doesn't realise that this is actually a two-person podcast. He's convinced the voice inside his head is not a separate entity, which is me, Lorcan Mullen. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be a hell of a twist if it had turned out during all this time this has been a one-person podcast who's just been <laughs> very good at switching voices? There must be at least one podcast out there that is that. At least one? They can't have a solo podcast. It'll have to be a banter, like badinage a dialogue but they don't have a close enough friend to do that with so they've had to create another <laughs> character and splice them oh, together Jesus. the closest we came to that was the episode where Matthew came in as a guest and recorded and I realised that I'd been speaking through the wrong mic and the audio, I mean you think your stuff usually sounds bad mine <clears> is just absolutely atrocious to the point that I thought it would be unlistenable. So I literally went back and listened back to the recording, listened back to what I said, and then repeated it and cut it into the conversation. And when you think about the ratio of uh, words spoken on this podcast, that's a hell of a task. In fairness, because Matthew was on the podcast, I was actually somewhat polite for some spaces of the 
conversation and allowed him to talk. Brilliant. <laughs> well, understand. All you got to do, Simon, is create a successful YouTube video series about pro wrestling that gains such a following that actual pro wrestlers of high renown talk <laughs> about it and refer to it and follow you on Twitter. Then I might allow you to talk a bit more. So Brilliant. you know, get get moving. Ah. Uh... Matthew stands unopposed. Matthew <laughs> stands unopposed in that field. WWE tried. They failed. <laughs> well, talking about someone that WWE tried with on several occasions, we, as is said so often, it's almost pointless stating it, but we don't usually like to talk, especially with the traditional old school LMTYS podcast episodes. We don't like to date them so much. We like them to be something that can be picked up at various points. In the future. But I thought this was a logical follow-up to one of the other episodes that we did in the past. Which was where we discussed 10 years of John Cena. Not his whole 10-year run. It wasn't like the 10th anniversary of him coming out uh, after Kurt Angle had cut his promo. Uh, for an open challenge. But it was about, I think it was 10 years after he'd won his first WWE title at WrestleMania 21. So it was like 10 oh, years yeah, of yeah, John yeah. Cena as like the perennial headliner face of the company. So as a logical follow-up to that, we're doing one of his fellow Class of 02 members. The guy that I suppose, at least at various points of WWE, have tried to illustrate is the yin to his yang, I suppose. The other biggest name of his generation. Yes. And that this was, by a funny coincidence, that the latest episode of Monday Night Raw was the exact... 20th anniversary, although actually would it have been the exact 20th anniversary for the Smackdown episode? Because it would have probably been that the Smackdown episode aired on the Thursday, but was recorded on the Tuesday. So maybe his debut was recorded on the 23rd of April, but didn't air until the 25th of April. Yeah, well, you know WWE, they're not sticklers for uh, accuracy, so... No, and in fairness, you know, if, if it was happening on an episode when an episode of Bloody Main Event was supposed to be airing, we'd feel like I think Randy Randy Orton's 20th anniversary deserves more than a... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, I think that... Like, if someone's 20th anniversary happens to fall on a Wednesday, they're not going to force all their friends and family if there's going to be a party to do it on a Wednesday. You know? I barely tolerate them on a Friday or a Saturday. (laughs) I think you truly underestimate how narcissistic some people are, but... I suppose. I suppose. I'm about to go to Centre Parks for someone's birthday, so, you know... Uh, American listeners, Centre Parks is wildly, wildly expensive. Hence, hence his bitterness. <laughs> no, I didn't have to pay. I'm not. I'm not annoyed at that. I'm just bitter having no. to spend a night somewhere else other than my bed, essentially. <laughs> and American listeners may know more about Centre Parks because Centre, for whatever reason, is spelt the American way. So there must be Centre Parks in the states. <laughs> Oh, I knew, I knew you'd pick up on that. Mm. We... I suppose we're talking about Randy Orton. Have... Yes, yes we are. But I was thinking about this as well, Simon, because you've always said that the year that you started becoming a fan of wrestling, you usually put down as 2002. You always make a point that you came in after the Attitude Era and after the Invasion Angle. Yeah. 
And yeah, so I suppose we are like... also on the 20th anniversary of you being a wrestling fan. So it seems, it's like how when I became a wrestling fan, that was just around the point that The Undertaker debuted at the Survivor Series in 1990. Mm. So my fandom of wrestling seems to almost be linked at the hip around the same time as the debut of The Undertaker. And so The Undertaker is being an ever-present in my wrestling fandom. So I suppose maybe Randy Orton is the same for you. But again, you've kind of got four of them with that class of O2. Really fine. Yeah, yeah. It's always a debating point as to whether Shelton Benjamin counts in the class of O2 or not. Oh, I think he counts. Mm. It's just that he wasn't the one, he was the only one out of those five that didn't have a sustained main event push. Now, there are ways you can put certain aspects together and wonder if there's reasons behind that have nothing to do with in ring ability or anything like that that mm. could be the cause of such a, a status. Of him compared to the other. And you have to remember, if the law is to believed, that without Shelton Benjamin, Brock probably wouldn't have come over. But I guess the key for those four, that class of O2, Batista, Randy Orton, Brock Lesnar, and John Cena, is that they came almost in the rawest of forms and were honed specifically by the WWE by their developmental territory. they None of them could have had more than a handful of matches, if any, before they yeah. debuted in the in the OVW system or the Deep South system or wherever it was that they started off. Mm. And so they had no indie name. They had no territory experience. And with the, the exception of Shelton, none of them have wrestled elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, Brock's had cups of tea... In New Japan. Oh, crap. But, yes, yes, you know. he has. But not a sustained one. Yeah. No, no. But Randy Orton, I suppose, well, he's the only one of that four that came with the pedigree, no pun intended, hey. of being a third generation wrestler. And I think, you know, now the term privilege is one that's bandied around a lot in society and in the culture and in the cultural conversation. And there's always, was a, we didn't necessarily use the term privilege, but there was always a sense of Randy Orton in particular being someone that got preferential treatments, especially during his early years when, if as much as Randy Orton was famed for anything, it was his disciplinary failings. There's the story of obviously what he did to that diva's bag. What's her name? Amy Webber, I think. Was it that he squirted loads of lotion in it? Was that it? Yeah, I think it got Mandela affected. That was the thing about Orton at the start, that he was... I think he was the young... He must have been the youngest out of all of them. I mean, he debuted, like, on the, the same month as his 22nd birthday. Yeah. I mean, that's the crazy thing. People are saying it's his 20th anniversary in the WWE, and he's still only 42. You know, Batista was, what, in his 30s when he started? Yeah, Batista's a bit of a late bloomer. Uh, late, late coming to wrestling. Yeah. But the funny thing about Randy Orton as well was that he took a circuitous route to get to wrestling as well. It seems like, I mean, he first started off in the military, didn't he? And ended up being... He did, yeah. Given a dishonourable discharge. I'm sure he made the argument you can't spell dishonourable without honourable. <laughs> Love that episode. Uh, is that, or I think I remember from the episode where he was on with Stone Cold Steve Austin on the Broken School Sessions, his dad was really reluctant to train him mm. at first. Well, they are often. That was the same with Rocky Johnson, with The Rock. And I remember, I seem to recall Jim Cornette 
finding out that he was miked or something, being heard whilst other people were wrestling, saying he didn't even like wrestling. Mm. But he was just doing it because of, you know. And it's one of those funny ones where it's like, your desire to be good at something does not always equate to your physical ability to be good at something. Yeah. How many men dream of being professional footballers, and yet there are some, like Mark Viduka or Jason McAteer, who were great at football without even necessarily caring that much about it. I think Benoit Asuakoto was a one as well. He just not asked about football. So loving wrestling and being good at wrestling don't have to be two things together. But I suppose more than anything, Randy Orton benefited, well, he benefited from so many things. I don't think him being the son of Bob Orton and Bob Orton Jr. and the grandson of Bob Orton was necessarily a big thing in the eyes of Vince McMahon. But I think what was a big thing in the eyes of Vince McMahon was that he was third generation. Yeah. With the right size good-looking, and clearly had an innate ability in the ring, whether that's down to genetics, being around it, or just being someone that can take to something like a duck to water, because some people can. Mm. And so, you put all those things together, what does Vince McMahon see? He sees a new rock. He sees money. Literally around the same time that the rock's clearly about to move on from the WWE. So he sees another rock. And that's... One of, like, Randy's first sort of, like, crowning moments, isn't it, is interactions with The Rock. Obviously, he's... I'm skipping ahead slightly, but in terms of, like, breakout, breakout moments, he started off, obviously, in 02, but it's... it's For me, personally, it's 04 and that handicap match at WrestleMania. It's one of the first times, like, he really, like, peaked up on the radar. Mm. Well, it's funny because... His first year and a bit was blighted with injuries. He does that match against Alcohol, he gets a surprise win, and he's just kept on the mid-card, pretty much winning all the time, but not putting any matches. It's a funny thing that he debuts in April of 2002, but his first pay-per-view match is not until August of 2003, mm. SummerSlam 03, and his first ever pay-per-view match is the Elimination Chamber with Triple H, Goldberg, Chris Jericho, Sean, uh, Sean Michaels, and Kevin Nash. No the pressure. Famous one where Goldberg just wipes out all of them and then gets one sledgehammer in the head and he's done for. Yep. And then literally <laughs> just one year after that, he's main eventing SummerSlam 04 and beating Stevie Richards for the World <laughs> Heavyweight Championship. I knew you'd do. I, I knew you'd do the Stevie Richards joke. It's insane because that that's he was you know how like some parents make that some people make the joke with the first child you make your mistakes so by the second time the second child comes around you're better off for it. Randy Orton was definitely the first child to the second child being Batista in terms of like big main event breakout pushes. Because you said SummerSlam 04. Obviously the moment I was talking about with a handicap match with the rock, that's only like three three to five months prior. And then we've not even got to one of his massive, massive crowning achievements. And I think the one that's the follow-up match, which definitely put him on the map, the match with Mick Foley. All of that is like squeezed into a five-month period. Yeah, it's crazy how quick, because like I said, debuts in April, 
April to September, it's just mid-card matches, no storylines, and therefore not put into the pay-per-views either. And that was also at the time when the biggest thing he does in that build-up is he has that match with The Undertaker, which is that classic, this guy's going to be something, but they're not there entirely yet. Yeah. You know, we see it so often now with, like, Wheelie Uter against John Moxley and everything, but a less bloody version of that and he gains the undertaker's respect which was seen as such a big thing to get at that time i mean he gave it to john cena backstage after john cena's debut against kurt angle yes so that's seen as that stamp of approval and how important that is gave it to jeff hardy as well after their ladder match yeah yeah so you know that's significant the three people that get that treatment so september 2002 he moves to raw and then a few months after that he does his shoulder in almost immediately. And that is when they finally lean into giving him what everyone really needs in order to get over with the crowd. Almost almost everybody needs, which is a heel run. Yeah. And that was a great turn of him doing the RNN updates. Whereas he, <laughs> he was very... He, and it's again, it's that thing of Randy Orton very clearly reading kind of scripted lines of dial. Like he's probably reading off a teleprompter at the time. Yeah. But it worked. I remember it. The one that I remember most vividly was Survivor Series 2002. So that was fairly soon after he'd gone on to Raw and then almost immediately got injured. Because they had him do that with um, interrupting Shawn Michaels' promo before the Elimination Chamber match. And again, nine months later, he's in an Elimination Chamber match with Shawn Michaels. <laughs> and so they got that into that. And. So then you got Randy Orton coming back as a heel, and then almost immediately they set up Evolution. And I remember that they had Randy Orton and Batista throw gold dust into the electrical riggings or whatever that yeah. caused him to get Tourette's because science. <laughs> and. But then there was that fateful match, that house show match, where it was them two tagging against the Dudley boys, and they managed to get both Batista and Randy Orton were injured and out for, like, months. Ugh. And then and one of the Dudley boys, I think it was Devon, was also badly injured during that match. And Batista still hates Bubba Ray Dudley to this day. You know, join the list. But <laughs> <laughs> over that... So it was a weird little, you know, interruption, but maybe, again, that compressed time that when he does come back and they restart Evolution all over again six months down the line with them both back and they just go back to what their original plan was, which was them yeah. doing the Four Horsemen deal. And I guess Randy Orton was being positioned as the Lex Luger mm. in that they have the innate physical capabilities and they are a threat to the champion. Yeah. And Arn Anderson enforcer role is being played by Batista. Yeah. If you believe some of the documentaries WWE has put out, Randy Orton, very fortunate to remain in that position. Because apparently uh, when they were floating the idea of Mark Jindrak being a member of Evolution, Triple H and Ric Flair found them both so annoying on car rides that like, well, they play off each other too much and one of them has to go. Yeah. And Randy is third generation and very good. Again. So... The preferential treatment situation yeah. rears its head again. And it rears its head throughout his run. And he just has good luck 
good good looks, which is good, you know, good fortune with good luck as well on top of that. And that was played up right at the start. The first time he turns up on TVs, that was when Vince had Stacy as his assistant after the oh yes the the segment that launched a thousand memes, mm. and then Vince leaves and Stacy asks him to take his shirt off and reveal his abs because that was one of the things <laughs> that made Randy Orton stand out as well was that he had a much leaner physique compared to most other wrestlers yeah that he had the the body frame more akin to say a ravishing Rick Rude it was a leaner thinner build but because he was so tall it still you know, and and again like that's all in relative terms you put him next to a regular person and he's still enormous Giant, he just doesn't yeah he doesn't have that bulk of mass on top of him. He was pushed in straight away, and they they wanted it. And like right after that SummerSlam match, where he's there to just take the hit for Goldberg, the next show is him beating Shawn Michaels in Unforgiven, and that must have been the start of the Legend Killer gimmick. Yep, and that's something that stuck with him all these years. That was really the first unique Randy Orton gimmick. Like, he had a storyline beyond just being Triple H's help. Psychic. Like, he's doing all that, but that he's allowed his own storylines, which Ric Flair and Batista weren't getting, really. Mm. They were tag champs at the time, I think. They were, but they weren't being put into storyline feuds that were particularly significant. They were just there. That was as much as anything to give them all the gold. I mean, they they literally, like, Mm. forced them into that Armageddon tag team terminal match at the last minute. Whereas Randy Orton winning the Intercontinental title was clearly seen as a, this is the Stepping step up stone. to the next point. Yeah. And he had like the longest run with that title for like, since probably the Rocks run with it in 98. Yeah. And there's probably not been that many long runs since then where the intention was the Intercontinental title is being used as a sign of, the, which is what the Intercontinental should, for me, be used far more as, which is a sign of this person, someone for the next step The future. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on their way upward. Yeah. And that was what they clearly were doing with Randy Orton with that title reign. And that was also when they programmed him in with Mick Foley. And Mick Foley, again, is just one of the greats at coming up with innovative ways to get someone over and doing something unique and getting something out of a wrestler. Mm. That's why I love, you know, his match with Triple H, obviously being seen as the gold standard. But before then, there was like his feud with Sting in WCW. Yeah. And then this one with Randy Orton, and then subsequent to that, the one with Edge. Yes. Where he drags these people into the deep waters, where it's like an ultimate test for them. This is going to be a really weird sidestep. But in the 80s cartoon series, Thundercats. (laughs) Okay, yep. There was a multi-episode arc where Lion-O is preparing for his final big battle against Mumra, the big bad of the show. Right. And to prove his worth, he had to beat each of the other Thundercats at their speciality. Like, he had to beat Chitara in a race. He had to beat the two kids in a game of trick, like tricking people, like a game of hide-and-seek or something. Right. He had to beat the strong Thundercat in a test of strength. And I always love that. I love that idea of someone having to prove themselves in someone else's discipline as the complete package. Mm. And that's why I always look at the Triple H match as like maybe Mick Foley's greatest achievement in that he turned him into a, a true 
solidified the sense of because I remember the big build up to that match was Triple H was Mick Foley did one of the few things that wrestlers almost never do, especially because this drives me crazy when some people now will like one of the things that drives me crazy about Britt Baker is how she kind of dismisses all of her opponents. Yeah, yeah. Mick Foley did the opposite of that against Triple H, and then to an even greater degree with uh, Randy Orton. Because I remember in the build-up to the Triple H feud, he said, you are the best wrestler right now. That's something no one ever does. No one ever says, they are better than me. Yeah. And Mick Foley did that with Triple H. And Mick Foley, with Randy Orton, was like, I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid he's going to embarrass me. Mm. I can't measure up to that anymore. And for him to like literally walk away from a match through fear, that's something no one yeah. ever does. Because then it almost makes it feel... Because everyone is always saying, oh, no one... No wrestler should look weak. No wrestler should look fearful. No wrestler should be running away from someone. Like, Sheamus shouldn't be running away from the Nexus or whatever. Yeah. If you do it the right way, it works. So it gives Randy Orton's already inflated ego an even bigger inflation. And then you have the perfect setup with the 2004 Royal Rumble, where he comes in at number two with, with Stevie Richards. And it seems like they're doing the replication of the 95 storyline where they're going to be the ones at the start and at the end. And then suddenly yeah. Mick Foley comes as a surprise entrance. Him and Orton go outside and it's like, I'm going to stand up to you. And then we get the build up to the Rock and Sock Connection match, which you, I think you put significance behind it because it's WrestleMania 20 and because they won the match and it was the last match for The Rock until WrestleMania 28. So the last match for eight years for him. Yeah. But I don't know. I, when I watch that match, Randy Orton seems like the fourth or the third most important person in that match. It's The Rock having lots of fun, mostly with Ric Flair. Yeah. And then Mick Foley and Randy Orton doing the stuff underneath. What stays in my head, because it's a DVD I've watched a lot, is that WrestleMania. And Randy gets a promo Yes. Uh, in the build-up. And I think that's just a really good promo. Uh, it's another really one of those like... ones where he's clearly doing a written promo, though. Yeah. Yeah, but he stands out in it, it is what I like. He, he like, it just sits in my brain as something where he tells the story well, he stands out, he, he shows what he's about, like that sadism of stuff like that, obviously throwing Mick down that staircase uh, earlier on in the feud. And that sadism's obviously then drawn out of him the next month when he goes into mixed deep waters yes but again it's what i love about those stories though is it's always not that they end up out sadisming they don't prove themselves to be worse than mcfoley or an equal to mcfoley like last house on the left or something it's mm. that foley tests their pain thresholds and they're able to survive it they escape. It's like I always say with the Triple H match, and it's the same with this Randy Orton match. It's not that they beat Mick Foley. It's that they momentarily stop him long enough to hold him down for a three count. Yeah. And I think one of the most pivotal moments, not only in Randy Orton's career, but I think in where professional wrestling goes from now on, and you see it all the time now, happened in that match. I think you know what I'm going to say. I'm curious if you know what it is that I'm saying the, in the backlash match with Mick Foley. Is it the shot of him bleeding heavily? Well, it's the shot of him taking the full back bump onto the thumbtacks. Ah. Uh... And it being his bare skin. 
It's not, look, that's more yeah. than Mick Foley ever did. Mick Foley, when he took those back bumps, half of that stuff's going into his shirt. Yeah. So it may not even penetrate the flesh, but it's pure. And it's something you never expected because Triple H never took a bump as bad as that. Mm. Obviously, he did stuff with the barbed wire, but the thumbtacks thing was always, that was always the bump that Mick took. Yeah. Like, Triple H never took a bump into the thumbtacks. Randy Orton, and that being that case of a quote-unquote legit non-deathmatch wrestler taking a deathmatch bump is something that we've then seen after that match countless times since, to the point that it's yeah, a requirement in, in most AEW matches every month now. <laughs> like, wow. Especially, well, they stopped doing it obviously in WWE very soon after, for obvious reasons. I mean, Edge took the, took the tack bump as well, I think. Yeah. Then when WWE had to go PG, but in TNA it was like a rites of passage. Every abyss match would feature a thumbtack spot. I mean, Sting took a thumbtack uh, yeah. spot but after that. Again, um, the more you see of Sting in AEW, the, the less yeah. uh, mentally stable he seems yes. in terms of what yes. his appetites for bumps. Yes, but that whole. I mean, Triple H, the Triple H match was the one that kind of introduced that notion, but the actual traditional deathmatch spots and someone being brought into it, you're seeing it now to this day with Chris Jericho and Zack Ryder going up against Nick Gage. And, all, you know, CM Punk and MJF bringing thumbtacks into their match as well. And I think this that was the match that was the catalyst for that. And that was also the match that was like... Randy Orton is, in some way, shape, or form, he's legit. He took that. He was willing to take that. Gives him chops. Yeah. And it's no surprise to me, then, that later on, you know, a mere few months later, they're giving him the belt and they're putting the world title on him. But then, as you say, it's the second go-around that they get it right with Batista. Because the the key thing to that was Randy Orton was turned on. Heels turned heel on a heel. Yeah. Batista turned face on the heels. He was the active participant. He was the one that had agency. Whereas Randy Orton never learnt the errors of his ways particularly. I know that he shook Stevie Richards' hand at the end of the SummerSlam 04 match. Yeah. So it was that was like a sign of it going there. And it was that case that he did something that Triple H couldn't do, which was beat Stevie Richards. Yes. Uh, that was some of the plagued Triple H all the time. He hadn't beaten him in the rematch, in the Triple Threat rematch. Hadn't beaten him one-on-one. Hadn't beaten him in the Iron Man match. He couldn't get the job done. Randy Orton did first time trying. So it was yeah. jealousy on Triple H's part. But Randy Orton didn't make the active decision to turn against Evolution ahead of them. Wasn't it like the next Raw when they did that or something stupid as well? Like, you didn't have... You don't have time to build that jealousy. It just happens. No, but I c- you can understand why it would be an instantaneous thing as well. Like the second he achieves it, Triple H's like, "Well, this isn't the this wasn't the deal." Yeah. So Triple H yeah. would immediately turn on him. He wouldn't even need the build up to, it. and he was distracted by Eugene in the set. You know, in, during that month in the storyline. Mm. So that wasn't a problem for me. The notion of it worked. But what you had... See, I remember, again, fancy booking's the worst thing in the world. But my idea of it would be that maybe Randy Orton tries to strike out on his own, loses at Unforgiven, which is how they booked it, so that they could then build him up to win it back at WrestleMania. That was clearly the plan going on. Yeah. What I would have had it then is have Steve... Would be to have 
Randy Orton return to Evolution, like be offered a chance back and and have it actually have affected him psychologically, confidence. Like maybe have Triple H utterly dismantle him, yeah, and beat him senseless and and beat him legit, fair and square, and then have my in my fantasy booking because I remember I wrote it out because you know to be fair I was twenty at that point, so you know fantasy booking is not indulgent wankers I realize over later years. <laughs> and then I would have it be that Triple H was like an abusive a parent or an abusive partner controlling yeah. him, gaslighting him. And have it be Stevie Richards as almost, you know, the the voice of reason saying, I beat him, I couldn't beat you because you're the better man. You're better than yes. this. And then have them feud with each other where Richards is trying to bring out the true Randy Orton that are beating him fair and square at SummerSlam. Yeah. And Randy Orton's not, you know, not listening to it. And then at some point, like at the Royal Rumble or something, he wins and maybe he eliminates Stevie Richards last to win it. You could almost repeat 04 where they come in at one and two or something. And then, mm. and then Triple H, and then you do the Triple H thing of telling him to go off to SmackDown and beat JBL. And you do the, do the Batista thing at that point. Yeah. But instead... They had it be just Randy Orton's the baby face, but Randy Orton's still this smug, handsome, <laughs> you know. It's similar to the Sammy Guevara situation. You've got to have some sort of relatability. There's too much clear hate, hateable aspects of your personality, both from what we hear backstage and what we see on screen, that he hasn't become a good person. He's just yeah. been turned on by the worst people. Yeah, it's, it's a weird mistake that keeps getting repeated. Some people just just read the room, like read the vibe. They got all that wrong, uh, unfortunately for for Randy. But but he recovered. Yeah, I think that was a lesson that they took because they never ever tried to make Randy Orton the white meat babyface again. Because and I think because the rise of Batista on Raw, the unexpected rise of him, I don't think they ever necessarily saw him as being as big a star as he became. Like they always saw him as like the most because because again he started so old. So it was like how many years can we get out of him? Yeah. But maybe because he was so old, that was maybe why Triple H didn't seem as much of a threat. Because he was like, I can probably outlast this guy. So I'll put him <laughs> over. But, you know, whereas Randy yeah. Orton, uh, if he gets into the main event scene at my expense, Vince usually likes the younger long, the younger ones. That was yeah. still the case back then. Uh, that could be some trouble for me. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sabotage there behind the scenes. Without even necessarily being perceivable. You know, it wasn't as clear mm. as... Taking fifteen minutes to pin Booker T after a single pedigree, you know. It's no, not... no, that was that was the apex. Yeah, to steal a term yeah. of uh, the Reign of Terror. <laughs> what I think worked with that was that because they had John Cena, because they had Batista, it was like, well, we don't have to fit him into this mold, which they then tried to do with John Cena, and then they tried to do so many times with Roman Reigns. Yes. So we can let Randy be Randy, and what Randy works as is a heel. So hmm. you know. After that storyline and he's out of it, he almost immediately goes over to SmackDown and he does the thing that then became the defining storyline of almost every WrestleMania. I'm going to be the one to break the streak. It was, again, yeah. going back to the Legend Killer thing. And then he does the RKO to Stacey Keebler, turning him back heel, which was always his natural state. But he doesn't have Evolution around to be a, a an anchor to him either. He's on that different channel, on that different show. And I honestly, going into WrestleMania 21, thought that Randy Orton was going to win it. Because at that point, the streak didn't seem like some impossible thing 
that could ever be broken. It really only became a proper thing at WrestleMania 18 when The Undertaker won 10 and did the 10 on his fingers yeah. after beating Ric Flair. And yeah, and that that's the thing. He beat Ric Flair in a fairly nothing match. It wasn't like that. It wouldn't be. It's not at the showcase, annual showcase stage, which it got to towards the end. Well, my point was that it wasn't the be all and end all. Ric Flair was going after The Undertaker, not because he wanted to break the streak. He was going after The Undertaker because The Undertaker was beating up his son and doing all these <laughs> horrible things to him. Yeah. Randy Orton was the first one to say, I'm going to break the streak. It wasn't. It's for, it's you know, for storyline purposes. It wasn't the big show. Streak, and, it yeah. wasn't the big show in a train feuding with him and, and a, an Australian convict, it, and it wasn't Kane insisting that he was dead again. Yeah, it was specifically the streak is a championship in and of itself at this point. And so Randy Orton was the first one to do it, and that was the thing where it was like, and that moment where the Undertaker's in peril, mm. and that also was the moment to me. That created the out of nowhere RKO thing. Yeah, yeah. Where the Undertaker goes for the choke slam, Orton turns it into an RKO. Because that was, it was always such a perfect finisher to give him. I knew as soon as they gave him that, I was like, well, this move was already over with DDP. And the whole point of it was that he could hit it from anywhere. Yeah. Like, DDP was doing like a weekly thing when he was getting increasingly over on the mid card of how the fuck did he turn that into a diamond cut? <laughs> like, just doing it from some different angle every week. Yeah, Randy Orton just continued it. I don't think he's. I actually think DDP's diamond cutter always looks better than Randy Orton's RKO. I never was a huge fan of doing it with one arm. I always think you should do it with two in the cravat. And Orton would do it like that sometimes, but most of the time, it was him just hitting it wherever he is. RKO still looks great and is over as Rover to this day. Yeah, but I would say just like on a technical level, who does it better? I would say DDP. Mm. I think. In terms of like memorability, I, 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 this must be a generational thing. But I, I'm I'm Randy over D, DDP when it comes to like the move. But I've seen them do more like silly things with it. Be it the Evan Bourne one. Well, I think at that point it became as much a challenge to so many wrestlers that they wanted to take the RKO. It was like how everyone wanted to take the Worm at one yeah. point, or. Everyone wants to take Socko and see how they can sell it. It's like it's a point of... Everyone Mm. wants to take the Stone Cold Stunner and who can do the most ridiculous sell. (laughs) Yes. That became a thing. Yeah. Like, it's a badge of honour to take it. Like, you know, how Xavier Woods took it at that WrestleMania or how... Rusev takes it well there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Santino Morella with the salute and and everything else. And so now it's like... Because I think it was... It was... You know, probably the most famous RKO now is the Seth Rollins one. It's between that and the Evan Bourne one, I suppose. Yeah. And I know that Seth Rollins was the one that pitched it. Yeah, he. Uh, yeah, they talked about it on a... When Seth was on Talk is Jericho, actually, a few years ago, he, he said it, um, he did pitch it to Randy, and apparently Randy was like... Uh, and then he was like, ah, screw it. I always play it safe. Yeah, let, let's actually go for it. And apparently they couldn't nail it in training. They never got it once in mm. training. And they did it on the day. And that's why Orton celebrates like he's won the World Cup. Yeah. It's because it's the first time it's bloody worked. It's, it's, not, it's not as political as Triple H's delayed pin on Booker yeah. T. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, I think it's the ref that goes, mate, you want to yeah. actually cover him? Yeah. <laughs> So, 
then we get Randy Orton as a heel. And so he's always like... And that has always been his position ever since then. They never tried to build a brand entirely around him as the face of the promotion. Because the vast majority of his run from 05 to 2010... Does he ever turn face during that run? I think he kind of becomes de facto face when him and Edge were facing off towards the end of Rated RKO. Yeah. But other than that, he was just a heel for that entire run, wasn't he? Yeah, there's no real face memories of Orton sticking out around that time. And in general, really, any of Orton's face work just pales compared to his heel work. Well, I think it's also because he, he still, every once in a while, there was always a story of him throwing a phone at someone in a hotel reception. Yeah. Or getting injured and bad-mouthing people off, off screen. And just that sense of, he's the high school bully who's the rich kid's son and gets mm. away with stuff that no one else should. Like, if, if mm. he were one of the Highlanders, he would have been fired over, they would have been fired over one of Orton's yeah, discrepancies. Yeah. yeah, he got he got a lot of passes, didn't he? And he wouldn't even have to take like six months of getting losing to everyone on the mid card like Triple H did post curtain call. Yeah. He never even got that treatment. He was always given But they always saw him as this great talent. I think that was also one of the big there's never been a wide there's one of the few wrestlers with a real wide discrepancy of how highly rated he is by his peers compared to the more passionate online voices that rate matches in star ratings that would say, like, he's never had how many matches has he had this over four and a quarter stars or whatever. Yeah. You know. But Randy Orton, he's like he's a wrestler's wrestler. I mean, I, like, William Regal will say that he does everything right. Like, he just does a headlock better than anyone. He does, well, famously, yeah. he does a chin lock better than anyone else does. That he never looks bad and that his movement in the ring is so smooth and natural. And obviously, over time, he gradually developed that viper physicality. Mm. That, And he just does seem at home in the ring, that he just knows it innately. Yeah, I'm trying now, like, in my head, to try and think of, like, notably bad or poor or iffy performances from Orton. And most of the times I can think about them, it, it's due to injury to him or yeah. notably, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but in that fated tag match at New Year's Revolution, Triple H's quad just taking <laughs> a walk. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the only spot that I can remember being like Botchamania worthy with Randy Orton that was a big one was there was like some communication issue with him and Alberto Del Rio. I know exactly the one you're on about, yeah. Alberto comes off of the top rope and then just sort of lands on his feet and they stand there, not sure what to do. Yeah, yeah. And that's six and two threes amongst them, really. I also remember at one point he was standing on the table, like the announce table, and just his foot went through the hole where the monitor's supposed to be. Mm. And he fell, and then he didn't sell it, and then he did sell it because it properly hurts. <laughs> but yeah, that's like what two minor things. Yeah, I mean, and another one, another one, I guess, is when he did back suplex to one of the Singh brothers, oh, and they over rotated, yeah. and Randy Orton didn't even hide it. Oh god, I might have just killed someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although that wasn't him. Uh, no. That that was one of the Sings, and I think 
I'm referencing Talk is Jericho a lot, but when the Sings were on there, I think Jericho did politely remind them that their bump cards isn't infinite. <laughs> well, I don't think that was how he meant to take it. I just think that it was a genuine case of Orton maybe mismeasuring their height compared to his heights. Yeah. And it just... The, the oh, that was a Punjabi off. prison match as well, and they're never easy to work. Yeah. yeah. But the whole deliberate pace of Randy Orton, it's kind of like those... I, I almost think it's almost like how... like It's like how filmmakers all defended Eyes Wide Shut as a masterpiece, but loads of people were like, but it was boring as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> so it's like... The thing with the thing with Randy because like Bret Hart rates Randy Orton, you know, mm. like I say, Regal rates Randy Randy Orton. Like all of the legends rate Randy Orton because of his smoothness, his confidence, yeah, his innate ability in the ring. And his dad was famous as well for being fantastic in the ring. Bret said that like him and Bob Orton Jr. were like the two guys that never injured anyone in the ring, and that that's a sign of a truly great wrestler. Whereas Randy Orton, I mean, again, another way that he gets preferential treatment is some wrestlers, when they suffer the number of injuries that Randy Orton did, especially in the first six or seven years of his run in the promotion, would just never be given enough of a push because they were just seen as not a reliable investment. Shoulder injury in 02, injured for six months almost immediately after the... um, after the formation of Evolution, injury, the injury that took him out in 05 or 06, straight after the WrestleMania 21 match. Yeah. And then he got injured again around 08, which is around the time CM Punk won the world title. And then he managed to, <sighs> just as he was given the clear, got into a motorcycle crash, which caused him to be off for a bit later. Yeah, there was one, I can't remember one instance, but there's one where he's doing the the uh, pound the mat taunt and the shoulder yes. just pops out. Yes, that was when, that was him really at the height of his I'm a viper, I'm a snake in the ring. Yeah. And that whole, like, slithering and watching and that, and uh, he stopped that after that. He never did that mm. sort of pounding the fist on the mat. He, he would do like a, he'd open palms, slap the mat in yeah. front of him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was, that was really the first time that he got over purely on a personality project, and that was like, I remember Gabe Sapolsky, saying that this is, like, the best gimmick in wrestling right now, was sort of around the time that he was in, he was forming Legacy. But this was, this is one of the funny things with Randy Orton, that he's got this character trait that's defined him for, like, 12, 13 years. It's always in the background. Yeah. Which is his hair trigger temper, which is taking something that is known of him in real life, that he has temper issues, or he had temper issues... And it's always something that they could return to. They build, you know, it was obviously the basis of him punting Vince McMahon. And that was really the moment that really triggered it. It was like he did the most reckless thing imaginable because he lost control of himself. Yeah. What was it, like, the condition they gave him? IED? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because then uh, there's one of his moments where he, he fa- has a little bit, uh, there's like a promo, is it like one or two weeks later on Raw, where he loses his rag with the crowd a bit. And goes a little bit off off script. Yeah, that was that was one of his best looks as well. Like his head, he always has had short hair, cropped short hair, but that was like shaved skinhead level. Yeah, and that was also yeah. him is like leanest as well. He was very thin at that point. 
obviously was post steroids and everything. So you thought he was lean back in oh four oh five, and then you compare that to his mm. twenty ten run. He's, you know, he's there's another thing for absences. He had a thirty day and a sixty day suspension, if memory serves, yeah. at one point. Yeah. Well, it was always that thing. I think like he he had his the, there was a running gag that he's had like five three third strikes that haven't counted. Yeah, because it was supposed to be like three strikes and you were fired or something along those lines. They never did. Yeah, because I and I think that's one of the reasons like the whole scheme lost a lot of credibility is because I think one of the first times it got to three strikes was Randy. Mm. Well, Jeff Hardy was another one as well, but he just left before the third strike could be implemented. Yeah. But, he's um, like these are recreational drugs they don't count yeah. they do Jeff <laughs> but that run of him with Legacy and just there was that air of danger to him then they had him do the thing with Triple H and Triple H had to do the home invasion thing <laughs> <laughs> with Orton's fake wife as well yeah yeah he had to deal with Triple H's ego but they escaped that uh, you know he escaped Triple H after that but then he got programmed with John Cena and this was to be fair to them it was so funny like how with Randy Orton and John Cena, they did such a great job of keeping them separate from each other for so long. Because I always thought, you book your first Randy Orton-John Cena match at a WrestleMania. Yeah. And they never did that. Their first match against each other was on like a random Raw, I think, one-on-one. And their first pay-per-view match was part of like a Fatal 4-Way post-WrestleMania or something. It was like they really blew it at that point of like building it as something special. My, is that the Edge, Michaels, Orton, Cena one? I think it was post-WrestleMania 23. No, then. Yeah, I think it was post-WrestleMania 23. Shawn Michaels, Edge, Randy Orton, Cena. Yes, yes. Which I think is yeah. often seen as one of... I think that's one of the matches that like Randy Orton's like one of the highest-rated matches he's ever been a part it's of. It's got one of the best finishing sequences. It's very often cited as one of the best finishes ever, yeah. So, I think that that run... There was so much potential in it, because he did have such an edge to him. No pun intended. Hey. And they kind of it went comical after a while. One of the ones I was going to reserve for like uh, later on was him having that Iron Man match with John Cena because that was one of the few times where he was like he was a heel that could get a legit clean win over John Cena in a in the Hell in a Cell <laughs> match. I think it was like he beat yeah. him clean as a whistle. It had to take his super death kill punt move to do it. But he did get a clean win over John Cena, which is something no one got, especially not a heel. So he was presented as John Cena's great rival. And I think that they, like with the WWE say John Cena's top 10 rivals, it's probably either him or Triple H that in the, in WWE speak, not Triple H, sorry, uh, The Rock is seen as his great defining rival. I think for most online fans, they would probably pick between CM Punk or Edge as his great rival. Yeah. Not to not to WWE eyes. Yeah, I'd say Edge. But um, then he kind of became babyface because it's one of those things where if you get so over as a heel, eventually they love you because you've entertained them so much that you become a babyface by default. And it was also at that time where the Nexus, it was kind of like, like the NWO or mm. the WCW Invasion. Pretty much everyone around the main event scene had to turn face because they would be placed in opposition to the Nexus. Before they inevitably turned on each other during that sort of fated SummerSlam match. I think there's at least one or two betrayals in that. <laughs> yeah. But Orton was kept separate from that until afterwards when he beat, when he won the title off of Sheamus. And then they spun Sheamus off. And of course, 
Sheamus and Orton also had one of the most important matches in WWE culture, I suppose, which was, again, a case of two people that were seen as more important to the company than necessarily those fans, especially those fans that attend a post-WrestleMania Raw. Yeah. Where they're having that match, the Randy Orton versus Sheamus, WWE in-house style specialty. And the fans were just like, we don't care. We don't care. We're going to cheer. We're going to chant for the ref and the announcers and everyone else over these two because you shoved them down our throats so much. And like I said, Randy Orton was over, uh, over legitimately at various points in before then and after then. But just in that moment in front of that crowd, he was not the one they wanted to see. Mm. But again, I remember in the commentary, they were saying Randy Orton and his temper, he could really go. I think he flips (laughs) the crowd off at one point, doesn't he? Yeah, but you got to lean into it, haven't you? Like The other thing I remember about that was, because he was clearly knocked because he forgot his line. Yeah. And he had to ask Seamus, what's my line? <laughs> on my TV. And his line was just something like, the big show is mine tonight. It's like, fucking hell. Oh, God. Is that the one after the big show turns on him? Uh, after their match with the Shield? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's Seamus Orton, big show against the Shield. I remember that. God. Awful. Awful. It's a shame the Shield never got a really cool match at WrestleMania, but never mind. Yeah. But then we get one of the best Randy Orton runs only five months after that, where he does turn back heel after a two-year run as a face, and the authority. Now, for all the ups and downs and all the misbookings of it... When it was purely Daniel Bryan in the ring with Randy Orton, it worked. Yeah. It was a thing of beauty, really. He was the perfect foil for Daniel. The establishment favourites against, you know, the guy that debuted in 2002 around the time Bryan Danielson was first making waves in the indie scene. But he was handsome, six foot five, square jaw with a build. Mm. And went in through the WWE corporate machine, whereas Dan- Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan, was the opposite of that in so many yeah. ways. Five and, eight, like, yeah. You know. So you've got all that on the outside of the ring and in in the ring as well. Obviously, hmm. the way Orton wrestles was perceived to be very unfriendly to the Indies. Uh, would would be a way of terming it uh, compared to the literal indie darling. I always wondered if Randy Orton had got fired, would he have just sunk without a trace? You assume TNA would have brought him in, but he would but would he have even wanted to go there? Would he have mm. thought like, unless I'm in a WWE ring getting a WWE paycheck, I don't love wrestling enough to do what needs to be done on that in that scene. I wouldn't necessarily be welcomed by that crowd. Or is it a case of I've done this for so long, I might as well write this to its natural conclusion. And there is a paycheck out there. But my point is that if he, you know, the natural conclusion always for him, I guess, was to be a WWE lifer, which is what he was able to become. Mm. But it was if the WWE had at any point said no. Because I don't think, because the WWE, surely one of the reasons you don't, you keep him is because obviously you see that you can make money off him, but you can make money off of so many people. Mm. You know, so it was, it must have partly been a fear of what he could do outside of the WWE. But I don't think he could have ever done that much outside of the WWE. It's weird. Like, you can make money off so many other people, but you sort of have to catch lightning in a bottle for them. Randy's got this, like, weird innate ability to be like, 
plug and play, just ready yeah. to go. Like, oh, yes. we need something. Randy Orton. Yeah. AJ Styles in the WWE is very much the same now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can just like, oh, we need someone to go here. Yeah, Randy. we need someone in the US title match for this pay-per-view. Orton. Yeah. We need someone to go over the tag belts. Orton. We need someone to actually challenge and win the world title for a month. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Orton. Orton or Styles. Yeah, they are Yeah, very. They are just trusted. They're the, I think they're just trusted. That's why I always kept saying, and you kept not quite getting what I was saying when I was like making the point that AJ Styles is the current Shawn Michaels. Not in the same sense, but just in the sense of the level of trust that they have in the company. Oh, that okay. They can put okay. them wherever they like, and they know that they'll do the job they need them for. To add that, though, it's because they're also perma-over with the fans. If they didn't have that special level of overness, yeah. it wouldn't work. They can lose to pretty much anyone that is needed to lose, and it works enough. You know, Randy Orton lost to Jinder Mahal and never got his revenge back. Randy Orton lost the world title to Mark Henry and never got his revenge win back. Like, he basically got owned yeah. completely by Mark Henry during that feud and never got the return win within the context of that feud. Obviously, in later years, he gets to do an RKO and touch his toes in celebration afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like uh, just to go back to that whole thing about the hair trigger temper, that was something that could come and go. You know, it comes up perfectly during the Christian feud, which we've talked about in other mm. episodes. So save that for that one. And then in the authority, when Seth Rollins gets brought into it, and Randy Orton loses his place in the pecking order. Yeah. And that sense that Triple H can't control the situation with that great moment where he's trying to talk Randy Orton out of it, and Orton just. RKO Seth Rollins and Triple H just has that look on his face of like it's been 10 bloody years of this <laughs> yeah. still, before the authority was given a name I think I've said this before Yeah, my dream when Triple H turned on Daniel Bryan and gave Orton the belt and it was like the guy that you know they had hated each other for years not just straight after their evolution but it would be returned to every once in a while the rated RKO when they were supposed to do an evolution reunion on on one of the raw celebrations and Randy Orton wouldn't come down for it because why you guys attacked me because they were the faces and Randy Orton was a heel he says yeah but that was just you were a prick and the crowd was like <laughs> retrospectively yeah he was a prick <laughs> and so instead he reunites rated RKO with Edge and, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just... I think because he's such a well-defined character, this is the thing that wrestling should do more of. Like, that's why things like Game of Thrones are so popular. It's like well-defined characters that are in their own little worlds within this world. But you know that, like, when... you Or Marvel Cinematic Universe is the best example of this. You know, like, after you see Guardians of the Galaxy, you're like, I want to see what Rocket Raccoon's like when he meets Tony Stark. What's that like? Or after you see Shang-Chi, you're like, I wonder what Shang-Chi will be like when he meets Doctor Strange, you know? Yeah. Now with Moon Knight on right now, I'll be curious, like, what does Moon Knight, what happens when Moon Knight meets the Incredible Hulk, you know, when he meets Bruce Banner? Or the new uh, Thor trailer, like Thor with the Guardians yeah, kind of thing. Which we got some of with... with with Rocket, but not with Star-Lord and Drax. Well, we did, briefly, in Infinity War, but I know what you mean. Like, yeah. a whole, like, maybe sequence where, the, where he is a genuine member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, kind of, part of me always wanted to see that as a whole movie, which we didn't get. Mm. But, you know, there, there'll probably be some tie-in comic book that people can bother with if they want to. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, and so that was what was so great because Randy Orton is such a there. There are there's a brilliant video that made one of my favorite YouTube channels, which is Red Letter Media. The thing that made them popular was this super long video essay, and it was really one of the first popular video essays that was explaining exactly why the Phantom Menace was bad. Like, in painstaking detail. There's a similar, like, from another YouTube video I just saw the other day. He's put up, like, a two-hour and 40-minute video, part one, of why the new Lion King film was so bad. (laughs) But this was the video that kind of started it off. And he said, this is the key thing about the fan about Star Wars. And he says, without saying what they do, like what their job is or what their role is or what they wear, describe to me Han Solo. You know, can you do that? Like, can you describe briefly what Han Solo is? Yeah, it's just like a cool, suave guy gets the job done. Probably would wear some sort of leather jacket kind of thing. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. What, how would you describe Princess Leia? Uh, down to earth, but like has an like a regal sense about her, like sort of like a strong woman, but understated, but but has presence, you know, like, understated in how she dresses, but has presence. How would you describe C three PO? Gay robot. But you can say more to it than that. <laughs> yes, I'm being a bit without flippant. descending into homophobia. Oh, Google's Thank you, involved. Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> no, camp robot. But now, but now try to describe Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, wise-ish bloke? But the, the, you, even that, you're not sure. So that's the point. Well, if no, because he, well he gets his biggest call wrong, yeah. doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So you had this well-defined character that Randy Orton developed over, like, the first five, six, seven, eight, ten years of his character. And then we know he has these variances within his personality that his temper can cause him to be the worst person in the world or a liability when he's trying to do the right thing. As is like, so he's the worst person in the world when he's leading legacy and he's like viciously abusing Randy. You know, he's as likely to, you know, he attacks Cody Rhodes' dad in front of Cody Rhodes. Yeah. He's like, what are you going to do about it? And because he's got Randy, because he's got Cody Rhodes sort of brainwashed enough, he doesn't do anything about it. Mm. And so then, when you have a defined character like Randy Orton, and then you partner him up with an also similarly defined, confident character like Edge, it works. If you partner him up in the Authority with Triple H and everyone, and it's that that ten years of their relationship, and then you get the Seth Rollins character, and he's really trying to strike out as this self-centered egotist. Who's similarly like Randy? Randy Orton is now no longer the spoiled brat of a group. He's the one that kind of probably sees elements of his younger self in Rollins as well, and so he can't stand the guy <laughs> and, and <laughs> Corporate Kane and all these other characters. And so Corporate that's why Kane. that's why RK bro, and so that's why you can put him with these different combinations, these different partnerships, these different groups, and it works because Riddle is not a very deep character but he's an easily understandable character yeah and because of those attributes and personalities do not clash naturally what makes them work is that notion of you know you know this character you know this character you like them both separately and now you put them together Mm. sparks fly and at first randy orton doesn't trust him and you're like why wouldn't he but eventually riddle is so sincere 
Randy Orton can't not see. And it seems like he's like the guy, the wrestler that Randy Orton likes more than anyone that he's ever dealt with. Yeah. But you also know five, six months down the line, they could have Randy Orton turn heel on him and it will work perfectly within the defined parameters. Of, like, because that's what wrestling has to do. It has to create characters that you can believe them to be virtuous good and chaotic evil. Like the whole scope of the, yeah. of the you know, the, the D&D lore of a character is there in one person if you do it right. You have that with CM Punk. You're getting that now with MJF. You have it with Randy Orton. It took them 20 years to create it, but you have it. Yeah. You have it with Edge, you know? Oh, Edge, definitely, absolutely. Mm. What I would say is I think the way it will end up with Riddle is that Riddle will be the one to like maybe turn heel, potentially. Just purely because Randy's in that perma-overstate. Yeah. and But they would have to build nuances within Riddle's character that aren't there right now for us to believe. Yeah. Which should be like... People laugh at him and think he's a joke, but he should say, you know I'm like a guy with an undefeated UFC streak when I got fired. You know I can kill everyone. Because he's legitimately probably, you know, if everyone in the WWE's roster, every man in the WWE roster had a big fight tournament, it'd be either Riddle or Brock Lesnar that would come out on top. Yeah. It would be... And and the Brock Lesnar that like you've you've segued there to the Brock Lesnar match like Randy can be used again because he's perma over to like give he didn't get hurt by that Brock match not from a push standpoint he got hurt and uh, yeah communicate that to the back no one really gets hurt losing to Brock Lesnar the only one that truly yeah. got hurt losing to Brock Lesnar was probably Braun Strowman he's probably the yeah, only one that got that... hurt the way that he was booked against Lesnar yeah um but. Other than that, like, um, but I was always, I've always been frustrated that they only had that one match and it did just kind of get built up so briefly and was over so quickly because there was so much potential mm. history with them. You know, like any, anything involving the class of O2, you should be doing deep lore with them. Yeah. I guess out of the four, those were the two that didn't circle around each other that much. I mean, it, it seems crazy to me that out of all the stuff that Brock Lesnar's done, he never had a one-on-one match with Batista. On the main roster. On the main roster. OVW doesn't count. Yeah. I've always thought I've always thought it crazy that they never booked a fatal four-way match with those four. Or even at the very least a tag team match with those four. Either Orton. And any combination hmm. of it could have worked, really. Cena and Lesnar against Orton and Orton and uh Against Evolution. Uh, Batista. See see Yeah. Yeah, because of the evolution connection and Cena and Lesnar being like eternal rivals with each other. Or you could have had Orton and Cena, the sort of faces of the promotion, against the two muscle guys of the promotion. The guys who left for other things, yeah. Yeah, any combination of it could have worked. Or then the strange bedfellows of Orton and Lesnar against Cena and Batista. And again, with Cena and Batista, it's like the two that won the title at WrestleMania 21 and, you know... Mm. With their own history. And have had beef against each other. Yeah. 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 So I never understood why they didn't, they never did more. Because they've always bigged them up as that class. But they've not actually, outside of Cena Autumn, where they just, after holding off of it for so long, they used it up so much that when they tried to do the Ultimate Warrior Hulk Hogan at 1990 Royal Rumble face-off, it just get crickets both <laughs> times. Yeah. Yeah, the amount of times that people have booed, the loud boos, I think when they're like the last two in a chamber, you get really loud boos there. Like, it's just weird. It's just weird how often they went to that well. 
But the thing is, Orton just became, like I said, really after that failed push in 2004 that then went to Batista, ever since then, Orton's been plug and play in various places, and he's always pretty much worked where he is. A Wyatt family member, for God's sakes. Yeah, the Wyatt, yeah, I mean, that was... You know, he got drawn into that on two different WrestleManias, and bloody hell, you know, <laughs> you can't blame yeah. Autumn for that. That was some silliness on a, on a massive scale. But yeah, just as, as someone with innate timing in the ring, he's one of those ones where I will also admit I don't. You know, if you add me do my list, if I do a list of my hundred favorite re- Randy, uh, hundred favorite wrestling matches, the only Randy Autumn match I can see going in there is the one he has with Mick Foley at Backlash. And even though that's probably actually a, a, a step up on the Triple H match, I probably would still put the Triple H match above it because of what it meant to me in that moment compared to... I was going to say, that that is a more of a seminal work for you, isn't yeah. it? And yeah, I think one of the things one of the pivotal works of all of WWE history, really, that match is. Mm. And whilst that match is probably one of the most significant matches for Randy Orton, and Mick Foley said it might be his best match, and I can absolutely see that on a technical level... For me, it's like, you know, when you've got... To, with those lists, you can't just try and be... I'm the, I'm the fucking, you know, objective voice of logic and reason. Yeah. And I dub these these matches I gave four and three-quarter stars have to be there. You know, it's like, you know... We've gone into that already. And I do think that that is... When I hear the online anger at Randy Orton and people saying, oh, he's made me five four-star matches that Randy Orton's had, I don't really... I get your point... And he has probably affected things, and some people, like, you know, you can argue that Legacy did nothing to truly push Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase Jr. to the main event, and that that WrestleMania match that they had as a blow-off was just them essentially jobbing to him. Yeah. You know, he essentially beat them both in a handicap match, and then they went back into the mid-card. Say what you will about Triple H's reign of terror with Evolution, it created two other main eventers in Orton and Batista. Legacy did not create two new main eventers for DBRC and Rhodes. Rhodes is arguably a main eventer now, but it's nothing to do with his legacy stuff. Yeah, but we're, we're, how much of that was down to Orton's specific influence? I just think that the booking was made to that decision, and Orton could have stepped up and said, I'm going to put them over. Yeah, I, I, take, I take your point. Yeah, I take your point. Triple H made an effort to put Batista over. Orton never made that effort for either of those two. There was one match mm. that he had with Ted DiBiase where it was like, it was in the build-up, I think, to Elimination Chamber, and the crowd really seemed to be keen. Like, it was as close as you got to that time when Batista and Triple H were, like, seeming to butt heads and about to fight, and then it turned out it was a facade, but yeah. it got people interested enough that that was what they built up to the genuine bust-up a few months later. <laughs> like, they did that at least once with Ted DiBiase Jr., and but then they did nothing from it. Because I guess it was that point that there were enough second-generation and third-generation wrestlers after that that there wasn't anything unique. Like I said, Randy Orton had the luck of the timing that he was like the second good-looking third-generation guy with all the genetic physical tools and in-ring aptitude almost immediately. Yeah. But he's never, you know, he's not had the career of The Rock, but he's been in the company for as long as they wish they'd had The Rock. Oh, definitely. You know, when he when he beca- when he when he retires, which could still be genuinely could still you could still be pulling out WrestleMania paydays right up to WrestleMania fifty. Believe yeah. me, the only problem he's got is that he has to wrestle without his shirt on. 
remember him saying he wishes he had the Kevin Owens set up so that he could uh, <laughs> let himself go. Or when he joined the Wyatt family, maybe you could get to wrestle in a vest. Yeah. But he's no such luck. But, you know, at 42, you know, he's barely any older than all the elite guys. And not, you don't see any of them retiring anytime soon. He's younger than AJ Styles. Yeah. Well, AJ's another one. Uh, just timeless. And eventually can wear a sleeveless t-shirt as well. Lucky devil. <laughs> I assume he's going to be a regular roster member. Injuries withstanding. At least up to his 25th year. Mm. Whether he'll still be a regular roster guy in 2030 when he'd be 50. But, I mean, when he when he goes... When he, when he retires, he's Hall of Fame first ballot or whatever you're saying. He'll be the head of the He's year. a headliner, yeah. Yeah. But, and he's also... And he's really the first WWE lifer. He's the first one... You know, he comes in, what, almost a year after death of WCW. He essentially learns under the WWE's developmental system and comes up through it. You know, there were ones that they picked up along the way, like Edge and them lot, but he was the one that was as close to being moulded from their own internal systems. And yeah. he stayed there. Obviously, with all the other class of O2, they all went away at some point for extended periods of time. He is a constant. Mm. You know, he's outlasted Cena, but he never reached the heights of Cena. He's not. No. I know he did a guest appearance on, like, Shooter, the TV series. Yeah. But he hasn't looked to pursue a major acting career. Although I think no, I he think could it... have done that. He could have yeah, done the direct-to-DVD I... markets if he wanted to. Yeah. I just don't think it interests him. No, but he has an ease and a confidence and a presence. You know, like I said, one of the things I love about John Moxley is how he makes everything effortless look like like it's innate. He's not putting on performance. Randy Orton's always had that in the ring, mm. and he's increasingly had that confidence. You know, he's just he's just a, 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 he's relaxed within himself. You don't hear the stories anymore of him having the temper tantrums, and that's reflected. There is clearly a humor in him now when he's wrestling. There's you know, an he has episode. That, of Rene Young's Unfiltered, where he says basically that his now wife was a really big calming influence on them. She ends up on that episode actually, and uh, now he's gone to like a man who like is like a bit of a family man. He, hmm. But yeah, it, it, it was a, it looks like there was a big external influence on his life, which has like calmed yeah. him down a lot. That's back. Yeah. Oh God. So you're talking six, seven years ago that episode was. So that broadly checks out in terms of like if you look at the reports, he reached that place of self-control and and he's now like a positive person within wrestling. Yeah. But he got afforded the luxury to make those mistakes. True. True. <laughs> and to be no. fair to him, I remember when there was that whole you know as soon as the whole Black Lives Matter thing happened. He genuinely did sort of get it. And he admitted yeah. in the past, I didn't get it. And now I do. Mm. So, you know, if Randy Orton can change, and if you can change, everybody can change! <laughs> we kind of fast-forwarded uh. through the second half, but I do think it's the first half that defined him in the second half. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's the table setter. Yeah. If it's yeah. not for how successful that Foley match is, if it's not for how successful that Undertaker feud is, mm. um, he's not... He set, he, he, he set a lot of precedence for what wrestling is now without yeah. without necessarily getting the credit all the time. Like I said, that, that thumbtack spot is very important. That RKO to the Undertaker at WrestleMania 21 is very important. Mm. 
he was given endless opportunities, but when you see the work that he's done and the consistency, and as we said, there's not a lot you can say that was bad because of him. You can say they were dull matches, but they were always competent matches, and the crowd never, like, I don't recall outside of that post-WrestleMania 29 Raw, a crowd ever really turning on a Randy. Oh, and also the Big Show match at Survivor Series, but that was just a whole, you know, hoo-ha of them. That wasn't Randy Orton's fault. Yeah. You know. So, I don't have much more to say at this point. At one point I was wondering, are we just going to go through everything? But that Because we did so much in the first few years. But, like, I think it's place setting. And because it was 20 years ago, that's stuff you got to think back to. Mm. He's the lifer. He was the first start of that particular breed and generation of wrestler. And he's kind of what you build. Like, when you look at WWE for 20 years... He's the constant presence when he's not off injured. Yeah. So he is as innate to WWE's. Like, if you were to say your top 50 WWE stars, well, it's like, again, I've been wondering about well, what are the tiers of wrestling? If you say the top tier of modern wrestling, WWE, let's say the top tier of modern wrestling, WWE, it's. Well, let's say all of WWE's history. So you've got Samatino, Hogan, Austin. Austin. Rock, Cena, I think, and Andre the Giants. Those six have to be up there. Then it's the questions of the ones just underneath that. It's like your Randy Savages, your Bret Hart's. Kurt Angle. Your Shawn Michaels. I wouldn't put Kurt Angle that high. Your Bob Backlund's and Pedro Morales's. And then mm. I think, so it's either that they were a, a big box office draw, but maybe not quite as big a box office draw, but they were a sustained figurehead and they're, they're of some importance there. Oh, okay. My bad. My bad. I see what and then I would say the third level is either the ones that burnt out bright, but were there for a moment of glorious, you know, glorious run, which would be like, I suppose sort of Lesnar, the ultimate warrior. Yeah. And I would probably put Randy Orton and Batista on that sort of third tier. Fair enough. So if you do the top 50, they're probably up there around the... Randy Orton's probably somewhere around the early to mid-twenties, probably. Mm. Mm. And that's a hell of an achievement, considering all the people that have come and gone from the WWE. Yeah. And to think, like, all those, like, worlds he's into, all those people he's interacted with and, like, set them up on their story, like, not always good, as you mentioned, with the whole legacy thing, but... But it's so funny that they can then make that a thing, like, the Kofi Kingston stupid. Yeah. And again, that fits in with the whole temper thing that he had in real life. That was probably one of the closest things that you saw to it. But then, ten years down the line, they can literally make it a whole thing. And again, that whole Kofi Kingston storyline was him about him fighting against unfair stacked odds. Yeah. And Randy Orton just so perfectly embodied that again. And again, that was one where just Kofi Kingston sank back into the mid-card after dealing with Randy Orton like Legacy and, and others. Ah. Uh. But when required, he can do it. He did it for Daniel Bryan. You know, he'll do it for... He did it for Kofi Kingston later on, but then it was... Vince then decided, okay, Kofi, you're going to lose the title to Brock Lesnar in seven seconds. <laughs> yeah. Which which undoes all the hard work that Randy Orton did. But Randy Orton, again, is just kind of... He's happy within himself and, you know, which you can be if you've had a lot of money over the years, both for your bad behaviour and your good. And, uh, mm. yeah. So... Mount Rushmore. We didn't go for matches. We didn't go for feuds. We went for moments. But you could count a whole match as a moment if you wanted to push it. You could count a whole feud as a moment if you wanted to. <laughs> I have I have three... Um, well, I have a number of 
pretty, there's loads of stuff I could say as ultimates, but I want to hear your four first so I can see which one we're going to make as the... Because there are some pretty obvious ones, and I'm guessing you made a few of them. So yeah, what yeah. are your? Do you have any alternates as well? By the way, do you have any like? A... I have two alternates. Okay, let's see what your alternates were. And they both came to mind during uh, us talking. Actually, so I have an alternate which I'm almost certain you won't have. So I'm happy like throwing it away. I have his visual pin over Hulk Hogan in their SummerSlam 06 match. Mm. Yeah, oh six. Yeah, oh, again. I... The, the, oh, that's one thing I want to say just at the end of this. When Randy Orton has his final feud, it has to be against someone who calls themselves the Legend Killer Killer. Oh yeah, that has to happen. And I sometimes wonder if they wouldn't, if if he were to retire sometime soon, that they wouldn't give that to like Austin Theory, who definitely seems to be fitting into that chosen one mold that Randy Orton had, and obviously Drew McIntyre had, and very few others have had. Yeah, um, but then Drew had to go away and came back better for it. But hey ho. Well, he didn't have the surname, I suppose. Yeah, and la- uh, my second alternate is the moment where Orton backs away from the authority in the run-up to the Seth his match versus Seth Rollins at WrestleMania 31, where he just flips them the bird and the crowd lose their absolute minds. <laughs> It's just such a great moment, especially because of how it's panned in, because obviously they don't want to put that on TV, but it's his face, it's his facial expression, it's Triple H's facial expression, it's the reaction, it's just a lovely, all-round, perfect, perfect moment. Okay, so what are your four Mount Rushmore moments for Randy Orton? I am going to go, here's cash in on Daniel Bryan to kick off. Daniel Bryan's story that is somewhat retconned obviously because that wasn't their original plan to end with Daniel Bryan winning the belt at Wrestlemania so it always annoyed me that it was Batista that they had tap out it always bothered me that they had Batista tap out at the end of that because yeah but that's part of my issue with titles not changing hands directly in multi-person matches as well Mm. but yeah for what that led to Mm. although again caveat not intentionally at the time and also his first heel turn after two or three years. And it wasn't a heel turn that people were desperate for. There wasn't a sense that mm. we needed this from Autumn. But then it came and it worked so perfectly with the Triple H connection as well. Yeah. Like that fight, that reunion of them for the first time. What was the one thing that these two people could not stand? The notion of a five foot eight guy you can wrestle <laughs> from the indie scene winning the world title. Some vegetarian nerd touching yeah. my belt. You may have kicked my wife, but this guy has a Meltzer rating average. <laughs> to be fair, it wasn't five. So... <laughs> and his beard smells of hummus. It's just wrong. I wrote down on my notepad, feud with Christian, but I'm going to, like, scrunch that into one specific moment. Can I guess which one it is? <laughs> Go on, yeah. Is it Christian spitting in his face and him getting disqualified? You have got it nailed on. It perfectly encapsulates the Randy character and the desperation of Christian to get that gold back. It's 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 a feud. It's a story perfectly told in one action. It's it's ten years of character build for both these guys, perfectly laid out in that moment. Yeah, but we've sung the praises of that feud on other episodes. So. We've alluded to this moment constantly throughout the episode. I am sticking it 
I've put it down as the whole match, but I'll put Taker at Mania 21. Okay. I would give an honourable mention to the SummerSlam rematch finish mm-hmm. with Cowboy Bob wearing a fake face. <laughs> that was also, of course, the feud where they suddenly thought, we better check that everyone has hepatitis or doesn't have hepatitis before we have them bleeding all over the place. Taker was mad. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. Yes. <laughs> and my, my George Washington on my Mount Rushmore is the Mick Foley backlash match. So I'm going to give my alternates, and we'll, we'll decide on something from there. So my alternates were two of the RKO's out of nowhere, because it became such a thing. One is the RKO out of nowhere to Seth Rollins. Yep. And the other one is the RKO out of nowhere to Evan Bourne. Those are usually the two that people talk about. I mean, mm. that's basically the only thing Evan Bourne is remembered for. For his whole run in WWE. The Seth one nearly made it into my Mount Rushmore. Purely because of how personal a moment that was for me. Because I remember being so hammered at the time. And so like, <laughs> what the hell was that? And I prefer that one because the thing with the Evan Bourne one. Is he doesn't really RKO him until Bourne's about six inches off, off the, the mat ground. anyway. Yeah. And it's also a big problem is that you can so tell from where Randy Orton's lying. To, the, to where... Evan Bourne's aiming to land is that his shooting star press was never intended to land where Randy Orton was. Mm. So, you know, as amazing as that is, I always have faults with it. Uh, Chad Gable obviously recently had like a similar thing. It's like, why are you diving in the air towards a Randy Orton who's now yeah. standing up? Yeah. You're going to die. <laughs> to be fair, that one that they did recently where Chad Gable did a moonsault and Randy Orton was just there to catch him into an RKO, I think that's I'd probably put that ahead of the Evan Bourne one as a more beautiful looking one. Mm. And because it was a multi-person match, I can't even remember if Randy Orton was the intended target at that moment. I'm actually going to swap around one. So, one of the ones I I had it in my Mount Rushmore, but I I think it's too silly to have in the Mount Rushmore. And I was going to consider putting the RKO to Rollins in the Mount Rushmore, but I'm going to kind of fuse it with this other thing. So, another one that's now become an alternate. I've kicked it out of the Mount Rushmore, but it is one that I wanted to talk about is uh, during the Iron Man match with John Cena, where they fit so much silliness into it to stretch it out to an hour during that run of matches that Orton and Cena had. And the, everyone always really just... That was the defining point of their feud. And every subsequent one, obviously they, the ladder match for the uh, Undisputed, whatever they called it at the time, was a big one. But just that was awkward as well. With the, That had a bad finish. But the moment where Randy Orton suddenly takes over the controls desk... Mm. And tries to blow up John Cena with Pyro. Because <laughs> it was like, how evil is Randy Orton at that point? That was Randy Orton as evilist. But then it kind of turned into madcap comedy at that moment. So I got rid of it because it's ultimately a negative on what I thought, at least when it started off, was a great gimmick. And then it just kind of descended into silliness at that point. So I'm yeah. going to move it into the alternates. My first Mount Rushmore one is, which, which was the best angle of that whole period of Randy Orton as this, he's sinking to new levels, was him handcuffing Triple H, Stefan, and then just toying with him. Like he gets his distance and knows how far Triple H can reach and so just plays yeah. with him. And then Stephanie comes out and he hits her with an RKO and then just lies on, on top of her with 
Triple H having nothing to do and just kisses her. Just that ultimate like sign of power and everything. I think that whole time there was like no commentary almost as well. It was an amazing angle, then followed up by one of the silliest angles they ever did with Triple H <laughs> having to get his revenge. And then having to have that match at WrestleMania 25, fucking hell. Triple H can't get disqualified. Okay, let's just remove all fun from this match, shall we? Yeah. But we'll talk about that another time. So yeah, I'm going to have the RKO out of nowhere becoming a meme. And it becoming a thing outside. The, the first one I remember seeing of it was when they took... Uh, Robin Van Persie's goal against Spain in the that World diving Cup. header, yes, and put Randy Orton's RKO into it, and then it just becoming a thing. So people, if they know nothing about Randy Orton, might know something about him through that. Like it, it transcended wrestling. It was one of the first times that I can remember of like the meme culture really working with wrestling. The other one, I suppose, from that time would be John Cena. You know, it's John Cena. Oh God, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I didn't even I didn't really know anything about that meme. But I knew yeah. of the RKO out of nowhere meme. I was seeing that around the place, and it was so perfect, like the way that they animated him, and he'd be like lurking around, <laughs> you're just waiting for it. So I put that into it, the RKO out of nowhere meme, and then WWE going into it, but actually not milking it so far. It just became a trait that was then built yeah. up, and again, then it becomes every wrestler wants to figure out a creative way to take an RKO out of nowhere and. Be the person to get that. So, I've got two of your picks, but I've got moments within those matches. So, I've gone for Randy Orton hitting the RKO out of nowhere from the choke slam at WrestleMania 21. And I've got Randy Orton taking the thumbtack bump in the match at Backlash against Mick Foley. I figured you had, yeah. So, you can pick one of those two and we'll make that the definitive Mount Rushmore one. It'll be that spot within that match. Foley. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because that was like the moment of like, okay, well, he's gone to something that I wouldn't necessarily have thought he would ever go to. Yeah. He did something more than what Triple H did in the Royal Rumble match. And it was just that thing of like, whatever you say, and there was so much you could say about him, he took that risk. and yeah. he was, And he had that match that was every bit as good as the Triple H match on a technical level and maybe better. And he went and he took himself even further. He took, he, he did stuff with barbed wire. He did stuff with thumbtacks mm. and that changed the, the, like the, the parameters of who could get involved in that kind of match. Yeah. That we feel to this day. So I guess, yeah, but yeah, that is a, that is our episode. I, I was going to say, would that be your favorite Randy Orton match as well? The Mick Foley one or, it's up there, like, from from a personal standpoint. Yeah, I'd probably go give it as my favourite ultimate match. Personal sidebar, the Shields versus Evolution elimination tag where the Shields swept them. Purely because that cemented... I, I guess, for you, the class of O2 would be, like, slightly different because you'd seen wrestling before then. Um, whereas that match was really my class of O2. Yeah. Comparatively. And the, yeah, and I guess with that as well, like that was the first time I've seen wrestlers where you only knew them from WWE. Pretty much every other wrestler that every wrestler that came to the WWF, they had a life before then or yeah. WCW. And these were the first ones that didn't have that life. Mm. And again, like it is a class that WWE have dreamt of creating ever since then. Yes. You know, you can say whatever you say about what you love about NXT 
they haven't ever created a class of O2. No. And I don't think they even are trying to anymore. Well, no. I guess the only other class of O2 is the four horse women. That's it, mm. really. Um, but we'll save that conversation for another time. But yeah, if you want to get in touch with you, Simon, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the free letters in R K O. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L O R C A N M U L L A N, as in the last letter of outer and the first letter of nowhere. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. For the next episode, we're bringing back Silver Screen Visions, but it's our first full series of a TV show. And it's a recently aired show that was on ITV2. The whole series is now available on streaming on ITV Hub, if you're so inclined to watch along with us. And it has a connection to a series of events that were held at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Star written and created by the comedy duo Max and Ivan. It's called Deep Heats, about a wrestling promotion. And the two com- comedians, Ivan and Max. Max, who at one point claimed to be the youngest professional wrestler on the UK wrestling scene before then going into comedy. Oh, okay. So we'll talk more about that. And they, between them, created the wrestling shows at the Edinburgh Fringe. They did four of those. And then from that, they've got this TV series. So we'll be watching that, assuming there are no Meltzer five-star matches in between that will keep us busy in the interim. That is the next proper episode of LMTYS Pod. But until then, whether that's next week or many weeks from now, There's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next... Oh, God, someone's okay with me! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nowhere! Vintage LMTYS.